You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Gaza truce holds for a fifth day and Israel proposes five days more. The mayor of Paris deletes her account, or does she? And should makers of historical films stop making stuff up? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Philippe Malia and Rebecca Tinsley will discuss the day's big stories and our On This Day historical series will resolve one of the most common pub quiz arguments. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Rebecca Tinsley, former BBC journalist and founder of Network for Africa, and by Philippe Malia, Professor of French and European Politics at University College London. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Rebecca, are you, as has become traditional, going to start the show off by shaming us all? other than you, with how much good you're doing while the rest of us are just sitting here sniggering at current events. That's so kind of you to put it that way. But no, I had had a really nice um, surprise last week, but rewind sort of um, 18 years to the Darfur genocide, and uh, my group decided to go to a refugee camp in Chad where there were about 300,000 refugees from Darfur. And we wanted to interview um, the mothers of uh, the women who had survived to find out their experiences to get testimony. Uh, But the children kept um, interrupting. So we gave the children paper and crayons and said, you you go and draw something while we interview your mum. And we ended up with 500 extraordinary drawings of the genocide. And since um, the Sudanese regime did not allow journalists in or Mm. photographers, it ended up that these were really quite interesting historical documents. And the International Criminal Court actually accepted them as evidence of the context of genocide in Darfur. So they have some meaning. Anyway... um, the children, I, you know, lost contact with the children who did the drawing, and I always worried about what happened to them because a lot of them who returned to Darfur were then killed. Anyway, fast forward to last week, and a bloke turns up in in our office and says, um, "I was one of those children who drew those 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 drawings, and what happened?" And we told him that they were accepted by the international criminal court as evidence and um, first of all it was lovely that he was able to tell us that several of the kids had grown up and now have families and of course don't live anywhere near Sudan but that um, it was going to be very empowering for them to know that they would have a role in bringing hopefully bringing to justice one day the people who killed uh, their parents and their brothers. That is a remarkable um, completion of that circle. Did you get any insight into into what this chap is doing with his time now? Oh, I mean, like 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 most Sudanese refugees, he's a 
He's a doctor. <laughs> um, there you go, Philippe. Follow that. <laughs> well, uh, following that remarkable story, I mean, that, that's really that's where we need to hear this time. No, I'm afraid I've been one of those sniggering at uh, current <laughs> affairs, uh, sitting at uh, home and uh, well, occasionally teaching at uh, UCL, yes. Uh, but you are going to Stockholm shortly. Yes, in the call of Stockholm, apparently. It's very cold there, colder than London. And I'm going to a conference. So it's a nice day. I, I love Stockholm as a city, a city of us. Several islands and very nice walking around. And uh, I love Scandinavia in general. So I mean, it's 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 not perhaps not the optimal time of year to go, but there's nothing not to like about Stockholm apart from arguably the prices. Yes, that's the problem with uh, Scandinavia in general. It's very it's very expensive. Uh, indeed. Well, uh, Philippe and Rebecca, we will have more from you both shortly, but we will start in the Middle East where the war between Israel and Hamas is presently in its fifth day of pause. The leadership of both sides pledging commitment to the ceasefire despite an incident today in northern Gaza in which several Israeli troops were injured. More hostages are due to be released by Hamas today and tomorrow, each in exchange for three Palestinian prisoners presently held in Israeli jails, and Israel has said it is open to a further five-day pause in hostilities. Some aid continues to reach Gaza, though by general consensus, not enough. Well, I'm joined now by Greg Karlstrom, a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Um, Greg, first of all, to this clash in northern Gaza, which I suppose if either side had wanted to make a thing of it, could have been uh, read as a technical breach of the ceasefire. How big a deal does it seem to have been? I I think, as you say, uh, it would only be a big deal if both sides wanted to make something of it. The Israelis certainly do not, because they have an interest in prolonging this truce to allow for the release of more hostages. And Hamas doesn't want to either, because they need this period of quiet to to regroup militarily in Gaza. And I think uh, one thing that's been an open question since the truce began uh, last week is whether the leadership of Hamas would be able to uh, exercise control over all of its military units and all of the other armed groups in Gaza, groups like Islamic Jihad, for example. Uh, and for the most part, throughout these five days of truce, it has been able to. Uh, but the attack uh, earlier today, perhaps evidence that that does not 100% have control over uh, everything in the Strip. Is there possibly another interest Israel has in extending the ceasefire, which is that they are being lent on quite heavily by the United States? Uh, it's, it's known as of today that the directors of CIA and Mossad uh, are both in Qatar meeting the prime minister there. The Americans are leaning on the Israelis when it comes to tactics and when it comes to post-war strategy, but they haven't come around yet to actually pushing for a permanent ceasefire, a a longer-term, more durable truce. So uh, these meetings in Qatar today between the, the Israeli and American spy chiefs also aimed at Uh, trying to expand this hostage release. America has a direct interest in that because there are still several uh, American citizens who are being held hostage in Gaza. And Bill Burns, the CIA director, uh, trying to expand this agreement beyond just women and children who have been released so far, uh, trying to see if Hamas might be willing to release Israeli men or Israeli soldiers 
who it's holding captive. But uh, I think there is an understanding both uh, on the Israeli side and, and on the American side as well, that at some point this hostage release is going to end and the truce is going to end and the war is going to resume. But is there not any thought at large that if this ceasefire goes on long enough, like if it's extended for another five days and becomes a week and a half long at least, that it starts to become a bit of a fait accompli. Past a certain point, doesn't it become quite difficult to resume recommencing hostilities? That was the concern for the Israeli army and and for many Israeli politicians uh, as this hostage deal was being negotiated, that it would become permanent, that there would become uh, international pressure, serious international pressure on Israel uh, not to resume the fighting and that, you know, wars have momentum. And at some point, if you stop the momentum in that war, then, then the war stops as well. Prime Minister Netanyahu has been very clear from the beginning that he plans to resume the war. His right-wing coalition partners want to resume the war. The Israeli army wants to resume the war. I mean, every message that comes out of Jerusalem at this point uh, is that this is just going to be a short-term truce and the fighting is going to resume. Well, let's take a look at what good news there is, which is the release of the hostages, at least 69 by last count, 50 Israeli women and children, 19 foreign hostages. What have we we heard from them about how they were treated and what they were told by their captors? Physically, most of them are said to be in good health. That's according to Israeli doctors who have uh, examined them over the past few days. Uh, psychologically, it's a different story. You've heard uh, anecdotes of, of hostages, including children, uh, for example, who weren't aware that their parents were killed during the massacre on October 7th, uh, who didn't know that for the past 50 days and are now emerging from captivity and, and learning that their parents were killed. Uh, we have heard about uh, at least one case where Hamas separated uh, a mother from her daughters and uh, even went so far as to try to attempt to release them separately, to, to release the children, but not the mother or the mother, but not the children. Um, there was also a story that came out, a, a fairly surprising story that came out on uh, Israeli media yesterday that the leader of Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, uh, visited some of these hostages personally. Uh, he's someone who spent a number of years in Israeli prisons, was released in 2011 in an earlier prisoner exchange, uh, learned fluent Hebrew while he was in an Israeli prison and apparently visited the hostages and told them that they were safe and they were not going to be harmed and, and they were going to be uh, exchanged in a deal, but they weren't going to be harmed in captivity. So uh, different stories emerging, but obviously a, a traumatic psychological experience for all of these captives. Greg Karlstrom, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio, and let's bring our panel back in now, Philippe Malia and Rebecca Tinsley. And earlier today, <clears throat> Elon Musk, captain of the blazing garbage barge formerly known as Twitter, posted what seemed at least a semi-endorsement of Pizzagate, the lunatic conspiracy theory which held that Hillary Clinton was operating a child trafficking ring from the basement of a Washington DC area restaurant and ping pong parlor which does not actually have a basement. Musk's latest brainwave would appear a post hoc vindication of the decision of the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo to quit the social media platform now called X. Her choice of metaphor was gigantic global sewer. Um, Philippe, basically do we agree with Mayor Hidalgo? 
I would tend to agree with that. Although I'm myself, I'm back. I've recently gone back to to Twitter after after a year long break. Uh, but what I would say about our decision is quite unheard of that a, a major politician should quit Twitter or X. Uh, because, of course, it gives politicians uh, a platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, when you are on Twitter, what you uh, tweet, every tweet almost, is uh, closely monitored, not only by the people who follow you, but the media. So sometimes uh, you can enact policy through Twitter, I think government, etc. So it's uh, difficult to... Of course, she, it's a scathing attack against, against Twitter. As you said, she describes it as a gigantic global sewer. She says... Uh, Twitter is a place that manipulates, disinforms, uh, fosters hatred, harassment, anti-Semitism, you name it. And all that is, I suppose, true. It was to some extent true before uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, took over. But uh, since my break, I could really assess, the, see the difference. Well, you know, I, I it, was, it got I, worse. I, I was going to ask exactly that. As somebody who went away for a year and came back, you're, you're quite a good control on this because it seems to me that gradually it's got worse, but I, I may be the, the frog in the boiling saucepan. Did you, did you notice that it was definitely worse and yes, obviously worse? absolutely. When you go away for a while... Uh, you, you can't help noticing that it got worse. I think the place is more toxic. And I, I'm, I base my assessment on people I know well, educated people, decent people, uh, sometimes colleagues and you know, academics, journalists, who in real life are absolutely nice people. But once <laughs> they go on Twitter, they become very uh, aggressive. They're uh, sort of manichaean in their, in their judgment, you know, when, whenever. And... I think really it's detrimental to all the people who go there in, in search of, you know, some, some uh, enlightened information. And uh, that, that's why also the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, uh, argues, you know, it's a place which should have been, could have been a, a platform for democracy to enhance, you know, rights and to inform us. It has gone the opposite way. Now it's, it's all that. So I think it's a mix of Elon Musk made the place worse. That's an absolute uh, certainty. Uh, but also, it's users, frankly. We're all a bit responsible for that. Well, indeed. So, um, Rebecca, Mayor Hidalgo says she thinks it's destroying our democracies. And th- this may not be exactly what she means by that. And it would be a difficult thing for a politician to admit in public, though I've certainly spoken to politicians who've admitted it in private. Because my pet theory is that one of the ways it destroys democracies is that every politician who goes on it. Almost all of the interaction they have with voters uh, is is with crackpots and lunatics. Um, they can post the mildest statement uh, and their replies will fill up with angry morons um, seething at them about their own you know, strange little obsessions. And I get genuinely worried. And I have spoken to politicians who off the record say, yeah, it becomes an act of will not to internalise the idea that this is the electorate. You have to get past that. You have to keep reminding yourself this is not real life. This is not how normal people behave. But most most MPs will tell you that the kind of people who turn up at their weekly surgery are also completely unrepresentative mm-hmm. um, of of the voters. I don't know. I, I when I think about this, I think what Saul Bellow 
um, said might be more relevant that it is a moronic inferno. It is addictive, which is, uh, and, and, you know, Mayor Hidalgo, actually, she should give it up because it's a waste of time. It is addictive. It's like Facebook. You, you, you know, hours pass and you've achieved nothing. Um, and I don't know, but I don't think it's, I don't think we should criticize the technology because I think the technology is, is actually neutral, like most technology. It's it, not entirely, though. The algorithm is balked to encourage division and encourage argument because angry people stay online longer. Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely accept that. But I, I mean, it, we get into a situation where we start getting angry about the invention of movable type. You know, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I've, but... I've always thought it was a mistake, to be honest. <laughs> like, like giving people the vote. Yeah. Um, But, you know, you look at the Daily Mail. There's a reason that Wikipedia will not ever use a quote from the Daily Mail, because for, you know, for decades they've been printing lies. It isn't isn't just this new technology. It's any any platform you give people, be them politicians or over the centuries religious leaders, they will exploit it. Um, Philippe, is it arguable, though, that Elon Musk should be worried about the example that Anne Hidalgo might be setting here, because Twitter wouldn't work, or X or whatever we're supposed to call it now, wouldn't work, or at least it wouldn't have an appeal to angry lunatics if normal people and politicians and journalists weren't on it. They would have nobody to see that. That is the fun for the, for, for the trolls and baiters um, and argument starters. If everybody just walks away from it and leaves these people squabbling amongst themselves, that's not going to be much fun for them either. Yes, I think there's probably a reason for Elon Musk to get a little bit worried. You know, if prominent politicians uh, start uh, quitting, uh, leaving uh, X, I think uh, maybe Anne Hidalgo is setting a trend there. We we shall see. It's too early to say. to my knowledge, she is the first prominent politician, mm. at least in France, who is doing that. So let's see uh, what what happens next. But I think uh, she also quotes, she also says in an article in a, in a op-ed published in newspaper uh, in Le Monde newspapers, a serious newspaper uh, today, explaining her decision that um, uh, f- uh, Twitter France or X France is one of, is ranked the most uh, amongst the most toxic place of all uh, of the whole of, tw- of X in general. So I think there's something going on in France where uh, debates can't be civil, can't be peaceful, and probably she's had enough. But do you actually think he that Musk cares about politicians leaving? Surely all he actually cares about is advertisers stopping. Yeah, and he's running out of those as well, for uh, obvious reasons. Indeed. I do have a suggestion about what could be done about this, however. <coughs> Go on. And that is um, a 10-second delay, uh, which, of course, has been used you know, on TV for, for years. But uh, artificial intelligence is now good enough that if you gave it 10 seconds, it could probably sort out the misinformation, the, the racism, the malicious stuff, and, and just remove it. The trouble is, of course, Elon Musk is developing his own AI thing very much in his own image. So that can only go remarkably well, and I look forward to further developments on that front. Um, We shall look at the United States now, where an appreciable quorum of former presidents and first ladies is gathering in Atlanta right now for the memorial service for Rosalind Carter, who died earlier this month, age 96. Her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, now 99, was due to be escorted to the service. He is presently receiving hospice care at home. Rosalind Carter's passing and the mourning it prompted reminds of the 
curious role of the US First Lady, as indeed those in attendance today, Mrs. Biden, Clinton, Obama and Trump, remind of the differing approaches to the job. Um, You have the advantage for the purposes of this discussion, Rebecca, of having met Rosalind Carter. Um, What does one talk about with the former First Lady? Well, we um, met her because uh, back in about 2002, um, my husband gave a small donation to the Carter Centre in Atlanta. And the next thing we knew, we had an invitation to come and meet Mrs. Carter when she was coming through London. And we thought, oh, this will be tedious because we'll be on some big table at the back of a ballroom at a London hotel. But, you know, why not? So we turned up and it was one other couple and Mrs. Carter and us. And by the end of the evening, my husband was sitting on the radiator with Mrs. Carter and a bottle of wine, (laughs) having a good gossip. And what she wanted, and believe me, she could be persuasive, was for us to set up the Carter Centre UK so that we could apply to the European Union for money, which we did, and we got millions out of them. Um, But what you ever, what what you talked about with Mrs. Carter um, was she was, first of all, she was the energizer bunny, and she was ferociously uh, focused. Um, Mm. And it was all about her mission. She was not interested in trivial trivial things like fashion or, you know, throwing fancy parties in the White House or anything like that. It was all about her mission. And um, she was exhausting. To be to be with, I I, um, I organised several fundraisers for her in London, and then I went election monitoring with her in Africa twice. Uh, and I'll I'll never forget one um, fundraiser we organised in London for she and President Carter. Their staff, very protective, said you're only going to have them for 15 minutes so they can do the sort of drinks thing at the beginning of the dinner and then they'll be gone. And we thought, well, we'll take what we can get. And they turned up and they both worked the room brilliantly and Mrs Carter was so good at that kind of thing. Again, completely on message. They then stayed to dinner and for two and a half hours they talked about what you know about what the Carter Center does and about their particular interests and it was like a tennis match because president carter would start and then rosalind would interrupt him and say but jimmy you forgot <laughs> such and such and he'd grin and sit down and mrs carter would talk about mental health or caregiving which were the two things she felt really very strongly about and again utterly focused and then he would interrupt her and say, but Rosalind, you forgot such and such. And she'd sink back into her seat. And we had, we had a remarkable evening with these people at either end. It was a tennis match. And she, she was very inspiring, um, but as I say, quite exhausting. Um, I do want to come back to the U.S. First Lady and, the, and its role shortly. But, um, Philippe, by way of compare and contrast, you, of course, hail from another republic, uh, which does have technically a first lady. But is, is the first lady, um, assuming that a French president, of course, can remember which one actually is the first lady, um, but is it necessarily that big a role? Well, you're right. We've, we've got a, a republican monarch, as the French call the president, given its uh, omnipotence and uh, his uh, power. And we've got, I mean, since Macron, Macron wanted it, a, a kind of... Uh, uh, first Lady. I think that the title is there. It's semi-official. Mm. And, but frankly, in terms of uh, protocol and in terms of uh, political commitment, her, her role is quite limited. I think uh, she, of course, appears in, in sort of a p- public events 
you know, as uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the husband or wife of a prime minister here would do. Uh, but it is quite limited. I, I don't think the, the French people would uh, would put up with a, an unelected uh, person, you know, playing, uh, fulfilling a, a proper uh, political function. So it's there, it's in the air. But I think just the fact of using the term first lady is new. And I think that was seen as an Americanism. So, of course, critics immediately started. But... Um, yeah, she 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 is around. She's she's pretty active for 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 the for wife of a president. Yes, but it it is a a, a strange role, isn't it, Rebecca? Because obviously unelected. Um, Although there have been occasions on which the candidate has sought to make their wife kind of part of the ticket, Bill Clinton famously, but with with somewhat mixed results. But it it has in the in the United States context taken on this almost queenly role, hasn't it? Yeah, but it, it, I don't think it was Mrs. Carter who was the first of these. Oh, it, indeed, it was not. Mrs. Roosevelt. And next week we celebrate. 75 years since the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights and, of course, also the UN, which was Mrs. Roosevelt, um, an, an extraordinary woman. And, uh, you know, I don't think we should get too hung up on the fact that the um, first ladies aren't elected because, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch isn't elected. D- Dominic Cummings, not elected. Um, in the case of JFK, you voted for him and you got the entire Kennedy family turning <laughs> up in government, which, you know, was, was good and, and bad. But Really, that role of first lady, if you look at, you know, the Pat Nixons, you know, they were almost servile or silent. Uh, The Barbara Bushes, uh, the Laura Bushes, silent. Or you have ones who are partners, and that's what Rosalind Carter was. And you had, yeah, I guess that the more activist first ladies like a Michelle Obama or a Betty Ford, uh, right. etc. But also, Raisa Gorbachev was 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 also in that in that role. And I have a a little anecdote though about uh, one of our own first ladies. When I returned from um, Darfur in two thousand four, I wrote an article for the New Statesman about what I had seen. Uh, the genocide unfolding there. And through a connection, um, I managed to get Cherie Blair to leave my article, which was in the New Statesman, on Tony's pillow one night. Wow, I don't even know where to start with that. The, the scenarios that could unfold from that point. Um, Philippe, just, just, just finally on this, if, if France is a bit ah about their own first lady, do they share, or even on the quiet, the world's fascination with the American first lady? Absolutely. Uh, and they also share the fascination for the, the British monarchy in the first place, but that's another topic, <laughs> uh, more even than the, the, the American first lady. Yes, there is an interest, and I think it depends, as Rebecca was, was just saying, it depends whether the the first lady, American first lady, is has a high profile or not. And and of course, um, uh, uh, Rosalind Carter. Yes, the French will remember will remember her because she 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 was always you know uh, uh, held in high esteem because of her role in human rights, peace, also uh, f- uh, in uh, promoting you know uh, the care of uh, people who are mentally ill. This is something which normally politicians have very little time. For and she did very very good things. She was a decent person. Obviously, I didn't have a chance to meet her personally, but it's very clear that she was also uh, and what a partnership with her husband. I think intellectual political partnership and a great love. I understand for seventy seven years. Yeah. Well, sticking with the subject of unelected French office holders, this. I must warn you. 
I will not lead a second in command. I will win by fire. I am destined for greatness. I found the crown of France in the gutter and placed it atop my own head. That being the trailer for Napoleon, Ridley Scott's new biopic of the French emperor who died a lonely, broken man in an English prison, a joke one is bound by law to make when representing a British-based broadcaster in the presence of a Frenchman. I don't make the rules. Uh, Sorry, Philippe. Uh, The film has occasioned a measure of controversy due to liberties taken with known facts. It depicts Napoleon at the execution of Marie Antoinette, which he wasn't, and his gunners blazing away at the pyramids, which they didn't. Scott has responded to such criticisms with short and, frankly, unbroadcastable shrift. Um, Philippe, first of all, do do you care much one way or the other whether liberties are taken with the known facts? Obviously, with a historical drama, you're going to have to do that. Nobody knows the details of most of Napoleon's private conversations, so you're going to have to make some stuff up. But is the invention justifiable? I think invention up to a point, I've, you, you, you've just said, because there's a number of private conversations. We were not there, as uh, uh, Redley Scott put it. You know, historians, <laughs> you were not there. So how do you know? He, he, he included the, a few other words in that statement yes, as that, well. That was the ultimate argument. Well, I beg to differ on that. But that's what he said. Uh, no, but I think when you make up things, when it comes to uh, sort of historic, historical uh, um, uh, events, you know, which uh, are very well established, this is a bit more embarrassing. And I think you also wonder why, because I read he had consulted with uh, eminent uh, historians, you know, Oxford uh, Mm. dons about that. What's the point of doing that if in the end you end (laughs) up making... Uh, those uh, uh, t- 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 taking those liberties w- w- with the film, but it- it's bound to happen because it's, uh, it's a super big pr- production. I probably wanted to to make it a sort of very uh, interesting films, entertaining. I don't, I haven't seen it yet. I'm planning to see it, but yes, the the, the feedback and the, the reviews I've read are not not too good because exactly that is there are so many historical errors. Yes, I mean I I'm happy to see Joaquin Phoenix cast in a role which. Possibly suits his stature more than a previous historical figure he played, which was Johnny Cash in Walk the Line. And I was once given a bracing critique of that film by the late great Merle Haggard, uh, who I interviewed a few years before he died, who just, I can't remember how we got onto the subject of the film, but he just harumphed. You try to take a guy who's five foot four and make Johnny Cash out of him. That was funny to me. Um, so there's that. They may have got that much right. But um, Rebecca, what do you think? Is there an argument for making stuff up? This stuff irritates me because with a story like, for example, Napoleon, quite an interesting yarn as they go. You don't really need to lard it any further. Well, and I think that that remark applies also to the crown. You know, there's mm. been quite a lot of drama there anyway without making stuff up. But I'm sure Ridley Scott would say, look, this is entertainment. It is not a documentary. I'm not pretending that it's a documentary. And Ridley Scott is not suggesting that we invade Russia. Although, you know, maybe maybe quite a good idea under the circumstances. I, I just don't think it matters. I don't see who's harmed by it. Mm. And I still think film has a role in interesting people in subject. Maybe it will interest a few thousand people to actually educate themselves um, about Napoleon or about the you know the royal family if they're really that that bored <laughs> but you know i i reflect on the fact that 
just about every human rights lawyer I have ever met will tell you the reason that they are doing what they're doing is because they saw Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> Film can have a, a, a wonder, can fulfil a wonderful role, not in educating but in interesting people. So, so, so what you're saying is you hope lots of people will see the film Napoleon and try to conquer Europe. Well, think about, think, <laughs> think, think about it like classic FM. Lots of people who care about classical music condemn classic FM, but it is actually, you know, it may be lowbrow, but it has bought, brought millions of people to appreciate classical music when they might found have found Radio 3 just a, a, a bit too much. Um, Philippe, the film will obviously be extremely closely scrutinised in France, but as it lands in the year of our Lord 2023, how would you say Napoleon is seen in France now? How did perceptions of him shift over the decades? It's, it's hard to think of an equivalent figure in many other countries, really, just this, this absolute colossus who dominates not just his own nation, but an entire country. Continent. Uh, the least I can say about Napoleon is that he's, he's no consensus figure, mm. unlike a Charles de Gaulle, who's now really uh, sort of uh, highly regarded by everyone, left and right, you know. Uh, he's no consensus figure because uh, people know very well about what he did. You know, he was the early day imperialist, the guy who mm -hmm. waged uh, so many wars. Uh, with very scant regard for the, the the soldiers, you know, over one million French soldiers died uh, during his campaigns, plus all the other the soldiers of the other army. So that is remembered. And also, he was no liberal, you know, when it comes to, for instance, women's rights. I know there were very few of them at the time, but he was not uh, particularly interested in equality. He was also very prompt at repressing, you know, freedom, you know, all the, the, mm. the, the rights which were gained by the, uh, uh, thanks to the French Revolution, 1789. And so he... He was all that. So, in a way, people who really in France regard uh, Napoleon as, as a great figure would tend to be politically on the political spectrum on the right, conservatives. Mm. You know, they sort of projecting an image of France's grandeur, you know, when, <laughs> when France was all over the place and they like it. On the left, he's not very uh, popular. But in general, there is one consensus regarding him, which is he is the guy who, following the revolutionary period, modernized France. Uh, did a number of things, notably um, sort of uh, setting up uh, the, 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 the civil code, you know, where you he gathered all the, uh, the, the sort of uh, 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 the legal system. He set up the French legal system. You know, it's a thick book that you study when you study law in France, where you have all the law of the people, of property. And that's Napoleon. Uh, he also did other things, such as modernizing the highest legal institution in France, the Conseil d'État. Um, and he uh, he created the equivalent of A-levels, the baccalaureate. That's that's Napoleon. Uh, so, in many ways, you know, it's very it's a very contrasted figure. Mm. But I don't think there will be any consensus uh, about him. So he, he can also be uh, like in Britain a hate figure. You know, someone who. Uh, he was a warmonger, and that is uh, that is very well known in France. I mean, if, if we are going to talk about historical inaccuracy in film, we, we cannot, I don't think, go past that ridiculous scene set on the London Underground in whichever film about Churchill that was, um, which, honestly, had it not been for the fact that I had very recently purchased a very expensive and heavy television, it might well have ended up in the garden. But I, I, I did want to close the discussion on a slightly more upbeat note by asking you both, in turn, Rebecca, I'll ask you first, to recommend 
recommend an actual, you know, a, a fictionalized historical film that you would actually recommend? I, I will start the ball rolling with Lawrence of Arabia, in which I'm aware, aware liberties were taken, but which nevertheless is a belter. Apollo 13. Wonderful film. Not bad, actually. Good, good, good shout. Philippe, do you, do you want to recommend one? I like a film shot in the UK, a British film, 2015, The Suffragette. Uh, I was teaching the topic to my students this morning about, uh, you know, I, I did a class on feminism, and I say the first way feminism, you know, really uh, took place, it took place in this country, and the suffragette way. And I think there's a, there's a good film about that, showing one thing, you know, Suffragette uh, women who fought for the right to vote were uh, described as uh, white middle class. In fact, the film shows that working class women took part in, in, uh, in the struggle for to get the, the right to vote. Well, it's it's funny you should mention the idea of, of women voting and democracy, Philippe, uh, because our On This Day historical series is about to go exactly there. But before we do, uh, Philippe Malia and Rebecca Tinsley, thank you both. And finally, yes, On This Day, our historical series does reflect on the election of one of the most and least praiseworthy people ever to enter the UK's Parliament. <laughs> Any listener who has attended a reasonable number of British pub quizzes will have seen at least one descend into near riot over the following innocuous-seeming question. Who was the first woman elected to the United Kingdom's House of Commons? This is one of those facts that a lot of people, very much including bumptious, complacent pub quiz masters, think everybody knows. The answer, of course, is Nancy Astor. If, pro tip here, this is what the bumptious, complacent pub quiz master says, your next move should be to hide under a table. What is very likely to happen now is that some peevish pedant, and listener, the narrator of this monologue has been that peevish pedant, is going to get up on their hind legs and prefacing their remarks with either or both, well, actually, or I think you'll find, insist that this is incorrect. And though I was, I mean, though they are right, pointing out the quizmaster's error in a British pub is liable to provoke what traditional British understatement would characterise as a spirited discussion. Because here's the thing. Nancy Astor was the first woman to sit in the House of Commons, winning a by-election in the constituency of Plymouth Sutton on November 28, 1919. But the first woman elected to the House of Commons was Constance Markovich by the voters of Dublin St Patrick's in the general election of December 28, 1918. But Constance Markovich never sat in the Commons. There were two reasons for this. One was that as a member of Irish Republican Party Sinn Féin, she did not recognise the British Parliament, nor would she swear an oath to the British Sovereign. The other reason was that she was, at the time, in Holloway Prison in London, jailed for campaigning against conscription for the Great War. It was not Markovitch's first stretch in the slammer. She had been convicted for her part in the Easter Rising of 1916 and spared the firing squad only because the British fretted about the optics of executing a woman. She reputedly told her captors that she wished they'd had the decency to shoot her. 
Though Markovic and Asta had little in common, they were both foreigners. At least Markovic saw herself very much as such, despite having been born in London to Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Nancy Astor was from Virginia, daughter of Chiswell Dabney Langhorn, railroad baron and bearer of a name that F. Scott Fitzgerald would have scratched from a first draft for being somewhat overcooked. In 1906, she had moved to Britain and married her second husband, fellow American Waldorf Astor, newspaper proprietor and scion of the fabulously wealthy Astor family. He had become an MP in 1910, but had been compelled to relinquish the seat upon inheriting his father's place in the House of Lords. Nancy Astor, now the Viscountess Astor, contested the seat her husband had vacated, won it, and held it until 1945. But... Nancy Astor was awful. She hated Jews and didn't much care for Catholics, unless they were Catholics who hated Jews as much as she did, like her great friend, the ghastly Joe Kennedy Sr., U.S. ambassador to the U.K., father of eventual U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Astor was prominent among that cast of upper-class Britons and or American parvenus who harboured a barely suppressed enthusiasm for Adolf Hitler. She also acquired a formidable reputation for personal unpleasantness, which may be the reason that she appears as the foil in so many almost certainly apocryphal stories of exchanges involving Winston Churchill, most famously... If you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. If I was your husband, I'd drink it. A monument to Nancy Astor was erected in Plymouth in 2019 on the centenary of her election. Even as the cloth was removed from the statue, a veil was drawn over much of its subject by the UK's second female Prime Minister. I'm honoured to be here today to unveil this magnificent statue to a brave and trailblazing woman. It's one way of putting it, akin to those fabulous passive-aggressive British newspaper obituaries which make great use of euphemisms like didn't suffer fools gladly. Theresa May went on to say that Nancy Astor's election 104 years ago today changed British democracy for the better. And it did. It should also have been reminding us at least that long that venerated historical figures contain multitudes, not always in a good way. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Philippe Malia and Rebecca Tinsley, also to Greg Karlstrom at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Emma Searle and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 